1: My name's Guy Murphy, I'm a director of the Mars Society Australia and I'd like to, to welcome you all here tonight. Uh, Mars has really been in the news very prominently this week with some, for a number of reasons. There's been the rather amazing announcement of the confirmed discovery of running water on Mars and uh, we also have a major Mars movie release, The Martian, which is coming out uh, tonight, Which Having actually seen it as a pre-release media screening, I can tell you it's the best Mars movie yet the most realistic and I, I recommend you uh, you take the time to see it. Um, this event this evening is organised by the, the Mars Society Australia and uh, uh, the Australian National University and it forms part of the uh, 15th Australian Space Research Conference and I might just It's also the uh, David Cooper, forms part of the David Cooper Memorial Lecture Series. And I'll just begin by saying a few words about what the Mars Society Australia is and what the lecture series is. um, The Mars Society Australia is a a private non-profit association with uh, branches in each Australian state that works to promote the exploration and eventual human settlement of Mars. We run expeditions and outreach events and have a strong online presence on Facebook. So if you'd like to find out more, search Mars Society Australia on Facebook or marssociety.org.au. This lecture series um, was founded um, in commemoration of David Cooper, who is a Western Australian-based co-founder of Mars Society Australia, and a very energetic um, space advocate who worked over, over many decades to promote space exploration in general, um, uh, as well as Mars exploration in particular. And this is the fourth David Cooper Memorial Lecture, and it's very fitting that we commemorate his memory by uh, perpetuating space advocacy and outreach uh, with this lecture series. I'll now, now introduce our speaker this evening, um, Professor Malcolm Walter. Um, Malcolm Walter's internationally recognised as a pioneering um, researcher uh, in the field of exobiology and astrobiology in Australia. I won't list all of his many accomplishments, but some of his, his key achievements are listed down in the, the bottom there that you can see. Malcolm actually spoke at the very first Mars Society conference in 2001 and uh, as a keynote speaker and has been a a valued long-term friend of the Mars Society ever since. So we're we're very privileged and honoured to have him speaking to us tonight as part of this lecture series. The topic of Malcolm's talk is the title, There is Life on Mars Probably. So I'll now hand you over to to Malcolm to deliver his lecture. There will be time for questions afterwards, so if you you have any ideas come to you as Malcolm's speaking, um, save them up, and i better get out of his way.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The laser pointer didn't arrive, so this is it. And I've decided that being a geologist, I'm going to take my jacket off as the first move. If you know any geologists and you know what that means, you know. Scruffy Lot used to being in the field. Oh, got one button, after all. That's a laser pull now, The top Which button, up, That top one. Oh, thank you. Um, now, where's my presentation? Yeah, let's just okay. uh, that's it. Yeah, that's the down, down and up. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> So I'd like to, to start by setting the scene, setting the context of any search for, for life on Mars. So my first few slides will attempt to do that and then I'll go through um, some exploration strategies that are based um, in many ways on what we know about Australian paleobiology. And then we'll go to Mars and uh, look at where the top priority sites are and what might happen. And I'll talk, of course, I can't avoid talking about this week's news. But water has been discovered on Mars before, I might point out. (laughs) So you've you've seen that. So the planetary context, most of you know this, of course, but uh, Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, big little planets, Venus, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and that's no longer a planet. The terrestrial planets, is a more interesting um, comparison here with Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Mars is about a third the size of, of the Earth, in terms of um, gravity, particularly. And it's useful to point out that um, uh, Venus is about the same size and, and density and so uh, on as, um, as the Earth, but it has a runaway greenhouse with the surface temperatures of 450 degrees centigrade. We're just right, we're in the Goldilocks zone and, and uh, um, Mars is frozen. And this, the uh, search for life on Mars has a quite a long history, of course, and the, the um, uh, Italian astronomer Schiaparelli back in the 19th century thought that he could see canals on Mars. And this is a German version of his map that's 1877, I think. I can't read it from here. And there are the canals. Some of these same names are still used to name terrains on Mars. You, you recognise them for those of you who work on anything to do with Mars, like Hellas, the Hellas Basin. So we've been thinking about life on Mars for a long time. Nothing new about it. And that was the idea, Mars was drying out and so the Martians were working, digging canals to bring water from the poles down to the equatorial regions where they would continue to live. And I was at a session today about um, off-earth mining, well there you go, the Martians have been doing it for years. (laughs) I've got my doubts about off-earth mining by the way, but that's another story. But even up to the 1950s when this image of Mars was taken from a ground-based telescope, there was still serious thinking about life on Mars because these colour patches changed shape with the seasons. And so the natural thought was that they must be related to seasonal vegetation. And that was a perfectly reasonable explanation until it was discovered uh, just 10 years later that they're seasonal dust storms. But we've been thinking about life on Mars for quite a while. Now we know a lot more about Mars, of course. There have been more or less 40 attempted missions to get to Mars in one way or another with uh, orbiters or flybys or landers and rovers. And we know Mars very well. And there are people who say that we know the topography of Mars better than that of the Earth because there are no oceans there. I don't, I've never seen the evidence for that really. I um, don't know how that calculation is made so I'm not sure about that but people do say that. We'll talk more about the features in a minute. We even have a detailed geological map of Mars. Though it hasn't been ground truthed as geologists say in, in most respects. We've been to a few places there rovers have been there and of course orbiters have have looked down but even the the um, uh, information from orbiters needs to be checked on the ground and it mostly hasn't been checked on the ground so there's a long way to go and another important uh, piece of context is if we're talking about life life here life anywhere else we need to think about what life is and we only have one example of life and I like to say everything we know about life is based on a sample of one. Doesn't sound very scientific, does it? And that's the main reason for looking for life elsewhere. I'm not feeling very well at the moment so forgive the voice. So what this is is um, a chart of the relationships of of all life uh, on Earth, with these representative organisms, comparing the uh, the RNA and DNA of, of different organisms, and you see three major groups: bacteria, archaea, which are like bacteria, and the eukarya, the things with sexual reproduction, and so on. But the point I want to make here is that um, on this chart, only the, these twigs here are macroscopic life; that is, life visible to the naked eye. So it's not the way way we normally think about life. And the point is that most life on earth now is microbial, in fact most of the cells in your bodies are microbes if you want to think about that. I've been staying with my daughter who's, you won't mind, will you Amanda, who's had five children staying with her and they've they've all got (laughs) diarrhoea. So that tells you about microbes in our bodies. (laughs) But the point I want to make is that now, even now, most life on Earth in terms of diversity is microbial. Another piece of context is the temporal context, the time context. The solar system, the the Earth, 4.56 billion years old. Flock representation in billions of years. Good evidence of life that I'll show you in a minute, back to 3.5 billion years. Tenuous evidence, evidence back in here, quite tenuous in my view. And it's not until we get all the way around here that we get to the more um, common or recognisable form of advanced life, the Shelley invertebrates. Uh, though there are algae that go further back. Seaweed type algae, in my view, not in everyone's view. So that's the sort of uh, time context we're, we're thinking about. That becomes significant because the areas of Mars that I'm going to t- talk about first are more than three billion years old. So we're, we're going to be back in this realm in here. So there, there's, there are two lessons that come out of that. Most life on Earth now is microbial and always has been. And I didn't emphasise this, but all life on Earth requires liquid water. So that, those are the two principles that are, are driving the exploration process for life on Mars and indeed anywhere else. So, the issue is, if we're looking for life on Mars, we're looking for microbial life. We've got a whole planet to explore, and then that sounds a bit presumptuous. We're looking at something microscopic on a, on a planet, and somehow we have to narrow down the possibilities. It's an expensive place to get to, so we can't go everywhere. So why do we think we can do that? because we've been doing it in terms of, of fossil microbial life for 60 years and one of the best examples of, of that is in Pilbara in Western Australia. So we're up, up in here and this is a very simplified geolo- geological map of the Pilbara and there's the scale, 100 kilometres and this is a few years old but these st- stars mark the positions of known fossils of various sorts that I'm going to show you in a moment. And so we do know how to find fossil microbial life on Earth, and that's what's guiding our exploration strategies for Mars and elsewhere. And one of the examples of that, and these are 3.43 billion year old rocks in the Pilbara, are these things here, Here's a scale of 5 centimetres. Uh, these, um, well, laminated sedimentary rocks called stromatolites, and they looked like that when they were living, and they built up a continental shelf, just like the continental shelf off um, eastern Australia. So they were real reef like structures that formed at 3.43 billion years ago. In fact, we know from other places that microbes can build reefs as big as the Great Barrier Reef, for example. So. That's one interesting point. You might be looking for microbes, but the targets can be as big as the Great Barrier Reef. And we're very fortunate in Australia because um, in thinking about how to demonstrate that those laminated sedimentary rocks are in fact microbial reefs, we've got a living example in, in Shark Bay. And there I am in better times. Next to subtitle, stromatolites in Shark Bay. And these are hard, rocky features that were built by microbes. And they're hard except for the upper millimetre or two. So there's a thumb for scale, and there's sand, and there's a microbial layer, a sticky microbial layer that traps the sand that is dumped on these microbes during storms. And a lot of cyclones pass through Shark Bay, for example. And because these uh, microbes are photosynthetic, they move up through the dumped sand layer to get to the light and uh, so make a layered structure like those layered structures in the Pilgrim. So, so we know a lot about how layered sedimentary stromatolites form. And this is one of the best examples in the world. And these are the, the sorts of microorganisms that are particularly important in creating that layering there's cyanobacteria or used to be called blue-green algae and the filamentous forms, the scale is 10 microns, 10 micrometers and unicellular forms. So that's what we're thinking about when we see those layered sedimentary rocks in the Pilbara and and elsewhere. So let's look at that in a little bit more detail. Um, These examples of stromatolites in the Pilbara are 3.49 3.49 billion years old. In fact, uh, most people think that this is the oldest convincing evidence of life on Earth. There's a life for scale. And there's a detailed geological map made by my colleague, Martin van Kranenog, uh of the area where these things occur. And there's a scale there. I think that's one kilometer. I can't read it from five, you. Five, five, five kilometers, thanks. And these stromatolites occur in the blue layers there and these black things, I'll show what you what they are in a moment. Uh, there, there's a more detailed map of the same layers. Here's a one kilometre scale in this case. And that's what they look like in the field. So these are um, layers of sediment and cross-cutting layers of what we call dikes. These are former channel waves for hot water that came up on the sea floor. And there's another view of that and it shows the relationship more clearly. There's the sediment layer that formed in a body of water and there are the passageways for hot fluids coming up from uh, a uh, uh, heat source from from below. And this is the in- interpretation. There, there was um, a volcano in a body of water and it essentially exploded and the top, top was um, Is it showing? There it is. Top was blasted out and you ended up with what geologists call a caldera and there are the channel ways for the the hot fluids coming from a magma chamber here, molten rock chamber down there. And the the stromatolite structures that I showed you at 3.49 billion years formed in that sort of environment. And we know that from the detailed mapping uh, and detailed interpretation. No, it's okay. Yeah, it's easier for me to stand. Thank you. Anyway, um, we know that from the detailed mapping and also from the types of sediments that are associated with them. And one of our students, uh, Tara Jokic, um, discovered these uh, sedimentary layers just uh, last year as part of a master's research program. This is scale. We're looking at a thin slice of rock under an optical microscope. And these extraordinarily fine, well-preserved laminations are typical of what is called geyserite, that's um, uh, silica precipitate around um, a geyser. And there's the same Im- image again on the top left and, and there's an example from geyser in Iceland and there, there it is, that's what is the uh, term geyser comes from. So that. that Um, discovery of last year really cemented the interpretation of the uh, environment being a volcanic caldera. And we have a very nice example of something similar in New Zealand. That's White Island in the Bay of Plenty. White Island's about five kilometres in diameter and there's the caldera in the middle and the the smoking fumaroles as they're called in the caldera and that's the sort of th- thing we need to think about at North Pole. At North, sorry, that's the lo- locality in the Pilgrim. It's called North Pole, ironically. The gold miners who worked there thought they might as well have been at the North Pole. And they weren't wrong except for the te- temperature inversion. I've been out there when it's been 50 degrees centigrade and it's not much fun. Mm-hmm. So if you go to White Island, you land at this, this beach there's no sign of life. Remember, we're, we're thinking of this as, like Shark Bay, as an analogue for what th- the early Earth would have looked like. It would have looked like that, no sign of life. Well, there's some life there. <laughs> it's one of my PhD students, former, and his wife, and a co-supervisor. But apart from them, still no sign of life, even at that scale. You can see the faint yellow tinge of of sulphur and you can see the hot steam coming off a little creek there. And if you go to that little creek and there's a a pen for scale, it turns out that this brown stuff is iron-oxidising bacteria and this green stuff is microscopic algae despite the fact that the temperature of this little stream is 40 degrees centigrade at that spot, and the pH or acidity is one, so it's hot battery acid. And these microbes are living perfectly happy there, happily there. Uh, that's why they're called extremophiles. Those of you who follow this sort of literature will see that term frequently. And if we go back to the Pilbara, we find, in fact, microscopic remnants of the same sorts, well of um, morphologically comparable organisms and there's a scale of 10 microns, this, this is remnant organic matter in a silica matrix looked at in thin slices under a microscope. So now we not only have those laminated sedimentary structures, we have these remnants of microfossils and. Many others have um, been discovered more recently, there are more examples there. Uh, And we know that they're made of carbonaceous material as one would expect if they were uh, organisms to start with. There's been a huge controversy about these things over the last 15 years or so but I find them completely convincing anyway. So that's the view of the early Earth built up from all these sorts of observations. That's a classical um, diorama in the Smithsonian Institution in in Washington, partly based on on observations from the Pilbara. Lots of volcanoes. The continents hadn't really yet uh, assembled, so think of the Indonesian archipelago or the Hawaiian Islands. Um, Stromatolites like the these things, like like the objects in the Shark Bay uh, and inevitably hot springs because there was water and there was volcanic heat. Now that could equally well be um, uh, a picture of early Mars. So that's the sort of environment to think about when we think about exploring Mars. So, So the Pilbara gives us powerful models for looking for life on Mars. We've got two models there. One continental shelf sort of environment, <coughs> marine environment and volcanic calderas. It's expensive to get to Mars, so it's cheaper to wait for Mars to get to us. And it does because we have more than 30 meteorites that can be demonstrated to have come from Mars. What happens is the asteroid slams into Mars and blast off rocks with sufficient energy to uh, escape the gravity of 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 mars and go into the solar system and some end up here and they're found particularly in the antarctica in in antarctica because it's easy to find black rocks on white ice Uh, there was a lot of excitement about this one ALH 84001 during the um, 1990s and even President Clinton had something to say about it and, and the excitement was because when it was cut open and looked at with a scanning electron microscope these things are found that look like the fossil, fossil bacteria from the Pilbara for example um, except that they're an order of magnitude smaller and, uh, and except for the fact that um, uh, this is in fact a chain of magnetite crystals with a carbonate incrustation. And these little carbonate nodules are only nanometers in in diameter and too small to contain even one protein molecule. And anyway, all the arguments for this representing life have been explained away subsequently by a few holdouts who still think this evidence of life. So, nice idea to wait for Mars to come here, but it doesn't work. So, we need to go to Mars. And the, the idea uh, that, that something has flowed on the surface of Mars is not new. This is a, a Mariner Im, image from the 1960, uh, 1960s. Um, NASA Mariner image. And you can see these river valleys. It's a few tens of kilometres across. River valleys, dry river valleys and meteorite impact craters. So something flowed there. We've known that since the 1960s. We have much better images of Mars now and you can see these these Earth-like dry river valleys and again, meteorite impact craters. And uh, we know that Mars has icy poles, it's carbon dioxide ice plus uh, water ice both in the North and South poles, and these are, are water ice clouds. We know the composition from uh, spectroscopic observations. And even more convincing, using uh, a gamma ray spectrometer aboard an orbiter, we can map the distribution of, of, um, of hydrogen, um, um, which indicates water, and it's everywhere particularly in the polar region, of course, and it's quite high concentrations. So knowing about water on Mars is not new. First, something liquid float. Uh, and then the geomorphology of the dry river valleys. is the same as dry river valleys on Earth or river, river valleys in, in general. And then we have the spectroscopic observations. So, we've known that for more than a decade. And we need to know about the weather on Mars if we're going to interpret some of these things. And here's one day, or Martian Sol, as they're called, um, from a weather station on Mars, the Phoenix lander. And the thing to focus on here is it's pretty cold. The average maximum, this, this was, uh, was near the North Toll, it's true, the, a- the average maximum was minus 30, um, minus, you know, minus 30 centigrade and you know, the minimum was um, minus 79 centigrade that day. Another thing to keep in mind is the atmospheric pressure, it's there somewhere, um, there. On, on Earth, at sea level, on average, it's 100 millibars. Uh, here, here we can see it was only 8.5 to 7.85 millibars. So there shouldn't be liquid water. It shouldn't be liquid water Mars. That's the weather station, it was the Phoenix lander, and it was actually a very sophisticated chemical analyzer as well. It wasn't a rover, it was a stationary lander. And it had a scoop and it scooped underneath itself and exposed what turned out to be water ice. But ice. But the strange thing was when it took a selfie of its legs, these droplets appeared. And over the days, um, when it took more selfies, the droplets changed shape. So they were liquid. And that was very puzzling, it shouldn't be liquid water. But it turned out in the soil there were perchlorate salts, sodium and magnesium particularly, and if you put enough salt in water you lower the freezing point. So that was the first indication that there could be liquid water on Mars. Uh, Still, the evidence that there was billions of years ago, Uh, stronger, but there could still be liquid water. So that was still quite a few years ago. And um, just so we think about heat sources, here's one of the volcanoes on Mars. In fact it's the largest volcano known in the solar system, Olympus Mons, 27 kilometres high and 500 kilometres wide with a 12 kilometre high cliff. I like to to say that uh, you wouldn't want to try hang gliding in an atmospheric pressure of say 10 millibars over a 12 kilometre cliff, straight down. And his justifiably proud uh, jet Propulsion Laboratory engineers with one of the Spirit and Opportunity engineering models um, and uh, Sojourner. Sojourner was on Mars in the 1990s uh, Spirit and Opportunity about 10 years ago. Uh, Marvellous engineering achievements. And then the more recent one, Curiosity, this is not a selfie, this is an artist's rendition, Curiosity on Mars. It weighs um, 800 kilograms. And some of you have probably seen the, the uh, uh, film of, of the landing, uh, The Seven Minutes of Terror, it's called, as they landed an 800, 800-kilogram uh, 800 object onto the, the surface of Mars. And it's a highly capable rover with all sorts of uh, chemical analysers and, and cameras. And it's busy on Mars at the moment. Now I particularly like this image taken by either spirit or opportunity, there's the the shadow of the uh, rover and what I want to draw your attention to is the names given to these rocks and presumably the engineers and geologists um, in NASA like to name rocks so they can orient their thinking about things but also can be a long night. You must as well do, do something other than pay, play cards. But th- you might better re- read the names. But um, Kimberley, well, that could be Northern Western Australia or, or it could be South Africa. Hammersley, that's definitely Western Australia. Wolf Creek, well, that's Western Australia. Um, Jackaroo, that's a pretty Australian name for a rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't read that one. Wallaby the Pilbara. And they were sitting there watching these images download and saying what we're seeing is just like what we know about the Pilbara. So my point, my point is that link and the role it's played in the, um, the exploration of Mars. It's a pivotal role. Now uh, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter Has a camera called High Rise, which which has spectacular resolution. This is you see the scale; it's 1,500 meters across. And what that orbit camera has um, discovered are these little channels, thousands of them, uh, which weren't known previously, on on the flanks of impact craters, in particular. And they change from orbit to orbit or season to season so that um, there was evidence for something again flowing on the surface of Mars currently. This was really the first indication flowing something on the the surface of Mars now. And you can see where I'm getting getting to uh, concerning the recent press release. And the recent press release was about these streaks here. This is a 3D rendering of, of a a 2D image um, released on Tuesday, our Tuesday and this is what, uh, and they found thousands, thousands of these now, those, these black streaks and uh, using the spectrometers on um, the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter they've been able to determine that the, those streaks contain hydrous minerals. And that that uh, It's a real achievement doc- just for the the camera but for the uh, spectroscopy as well because the streaks are only about five metres wide and it took some pretty clever mathematics to extract the spectral information from single pixels and that's what's just been done. And so there are hydrous minerals in those streaks and the streaks are currently forming so that's the evidence for flowing water on Mars and that that's the big discovery. And if of course if you're thinking about life on Mars and you've found water currently flowing on Mars, that's got to be a target. Another interesting thing uh, and this information was released um, probably about five years ago now. Uh, using ground-based telescopes in Hawaii, the Keck telescopes, methane was detected in the atmosphere of Mars, again using spectroscopy. It was a very controversial um, interpretation. But recently, Curiosity has found methane at the surface of Mars. So I think this um, formerly very controversial interpretation has been at least supported. Where does methane come from on Earth? Um, Two sources it comes from volcanic emanations and it comes from methanogenic microbes. Two possibilities there. Probably the same two possibilities on Mars. So that's intriguing to say the least. Now Mars um, is quite familiar to geologists used to working on Earth because they see all the same sorts of things. Layered sedimentary rocks. This could be the ring road around Parliament House here, you know, a spot where you can look at layered sedimentary rocks and unconformity and so on. There's no Martian Parliament yet. <laughs> More interesting to me is this uh, volcano on Mars, nearly, nearly Patera. There's two white patches which uh, spectroscopy show um, are opaline silica. Uh, so patches of opaline silica associated with a volcano. Where does that occur on Earth? Hot springs. And close-up of some other interesting features on, on Mars, but I'll, I'll skip that. I can't, can't help but tell you about these. <laughs> these are sand dunes on Mars. Um, um, Barkan dunes they're called, you, you get them in, uh, on Earth as well. People are on Earth they're normally red or white and they're black. I'm not sure why they're black. And um, other evidence for flowing liquid, well, certainly water on Mars, is that there are uh, channels and, and deltas in some large impact craters. So I think there's abundant evidence for flowing water on Mars, and it's just that we've nailed it now. Now in the last week, well, publicly anyway. So when the, the rover Spirit was travelling around, it found this um, patch here, which they called Home Plate, and the the wheels on the rover spun and they uh, Exposed opaline silica. And um, more recently, in Gusev Crater, um, these things were were found. There's the scale, the geological hammer. These uh, knobbly deposits were found. Uh, Where do you find knobbly deposits like that? Round hot springs. And uh, there's a, just a closer view, and I won't, won't go through all that. And, and some earthly examples, those knobs, when you look at them with a scanning electron microscope, you, you can see preserved filamentous fossils, fossil microbes. There's the scale down the bottom, 20 micrometers. And so now that we've got a, a, a wide range of targets uh, on Mars and we have to uh, decide where to go. And this becomes a competition among the, uh, the, the NASA uh, teams is to, uh, who's going to win. The engineers normally win in the end because you have to be able to land safely. Uh, they like to go to flat boring places and geologists like to go to, to steep mountains and down gulches and, and so on. So that competition is going on at the moment. in in relation to the 2020 NASA mission, and it's come down really to uh, either going to a delta, a river delta where there might be sediment that contains organic material which could be analysed, or going to a um, uh, spring site. that decision hadn't been, hasn't yet been made, but it will be made quite soon. Um, and I should make the point at this stage that there's never been a sample return mission. All the missions to Mars have been one way. And so we've, we've even though we've got some Mars meteorites, um, which are samples of Mars, we don't know where they came from apart from Mars. And so we can't put together multiple lines of evidence that um, might lead to a a convincing conclusion. So really a a sample return mission is is vital and that's what the 2020 NASA landing will be working towards. But it's an incredibly expensive and difficult thing to do. And here's one mission architecture as they they call it. You have, have several launches to take up the various components of the mission. And they have to rendezvous around Mars and a vehicle has to land on Mars. It has to collect rocks that might have been cached in a previous mission. Then it has to um, lift off from Mars and rendezvous with a return vehicle which which is orbiting Mars. And get back to Earth in one piece. and not get contaminated anywhere along the way. So it's an incredibly complicated thing. And the the whole mission, um, complex mission would take up to 10 years from the first launch. So that's what we know at the present time. We have no direct evidence of life on Mars. The methane's a hint. We know we have the right sorts of environments for for life on Mars. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, uh, So, early Mars was uh, essentially identical to the early Earth. We've got life here. Why not there? It's very simple minded thinking, but that's ultimately the logic. The weakness in the logic is we don't know how life started so we can't get right back to that step. But it happened and um, it's very likely that it happened more than than once. So in my opinion, where where should we look? Hot springs, because they're very compact targets. they concern. they preserve not only the environmental information, uh, they uh, preserve a lot of chemical information in the sediments. And they're perfect for preserving microbes because they're precipitating opaline silica in most cases, which um, encases the microbes and and fossilises them. Uh, And very compact areas, so they're uh, excellent targets. That decision hasn't been made whether the mission will go to hot springs or not, but uh, that's where I would go. So it's really coming down to a competition between looking for morphological fossils or, or uh, going to um, a delta site looking for chemical fossils um, or trying to get to some, some of those recently discovered black streaks and looking for uh, living microbes. you notice I haven't mentioned faces on Mars or pyramids on Mars which some people will fancy. So that's where we are at the present time. There's a very good chance that within 10 years we'll have a more or less definitive answer. There are people with expertise on chemical fossils, so I'm not going to say anything derogatory about those. Mm -hmm. But it's a very controversial field even on Earth. So I would go for a place with morphological fossils, um, and I would also want to go to those black streets on the off chance that there might be living microbes. It's my opinion if there was ever life on Mars, sure. it will still be there. It's very hard to sterilise a planet without destroying the planet. Somehow. So that's my view of where, where we are, if you can ever get to a launch, go. I mean, that's the shuttle. That's not gonna go to Mars, but it's a fantastic experience. And those those are the people I'd like to acknowledge. So thank you very much and I'm sorry about my uh, state.
1: Thank you very much, Malcolm. Um, we do have some time for questions. If um, people have things they'd like to ask, um, perhaps. Yes, in the, in the front
0: row. Um, you were mentioning that those sort of streets look like flows of water. Is it, li- it's not liquid water, is it icy water? And if you were to sample them, how do you know you're not going to contaminate it with like, microbes from
2: Earth? The second part is a very difficult one to uh, answer. Uh, yeah, liquid water. Um, the um, spectroscopy showed uh, abundant presence of salts. So it'd be the same as the Phoenix landing site where the the water was liquid because it was briny. So there would be, there's good evidence that there was liquid water. Because
0: ice can still flow, so could it not just be an ice
2: flow? It could be, it could be. Um, Yes, it could be an ice flow but um, the chemistry shows that it could be liquid as well. Um,
1: we had a, there's another question up the back. Uh, yes? Uh, when you say you expect to find life on
0: Mars, do you expect it to be spontaneously created life, or life that is somehow been contaminated from Earth
2: through you know, ex- exchanges of asteroids? Oh yes, and I didn't answer your contamination question. Um, yeah, the contamination issue is, um, well, it's twofold. You're thinking about natural contamination perhaps, yeah. But let's deal with um, uh, human-induced contamination first. It's impossible to sterilise spacecraft completely. You can make them very clean. But do the harsh things required to, uh, require to sterilise them, you destroy the, the electronics as well. So, so that's a big problem in, in trying to sample living organisms on Mars. Very big problem. There might be a way around it, but it's not going to be easy. What you're asking about is natural contamination, planet to planet. You know, we've got Martian meteorites here, and their internal structure is uh, very well preserved, uh, demonstrating that you can get a meteorite from another planet um, without uh, heating the uh, interior to the extent that you you would destroy, I'm not going to be able to go on much longer, living organisms, but uh, so um, the first thing to do would be to do something to demonstrate whether or not it was a a separate origin of life. And uh, with a fossil, that is going to be extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. It's Not obvious obvious how you would do it. With um, a living organism, it would be simple. But that method would be the ultimate goal, to find the second origin of life. Should we, should no, go on a bit longer, second. No, another question?
1: Uh, yes, the back.
2: I don't think they ever came to the conclusion that it was dry ice. In the early days that was a possibility that was considered, but that was before the good spectroscopy that is now available. So what's new now is the superb spectroscopy, telling us that it's uh, hydrous, there are hydrous minerals, water-bearing minerals. and the temperature constraints and what we've learned from the Phoenix mission are all, all consistent with there being liquid water. Do we know how long, for how long the um, uh, liquid water was on Mars' as rivers and lakes? Uh, we've only got a crude clock to use for Mars and it's based on the cratering history of the Moon. So, from the Moon we, we think we know and it's now a little controversial, but we think we know there was a very high cratering rate early on when the planets were accreting um, before 3.5 billion years ago. So we know there are abundant craters on the Moon. Um, the southern uh, terrain of Mars has abundant craters. The craters on the Moon seem mostly to be older than 3.8 billion years ago, the crater terrain on Mars is older than 3.8 billion years ago, so the answer to your question is that the rivers have flown at least before through 3 billion years ago. But
0: there was life on Earth um, within the first 1.5 billion years of
2: the age of the Earth. Well, there was certainly life on Earth at 3.5 billion years ago. Nearly everybody agrees with that. I agree with it, some, some of my work, <laughs> um, and there's putative evidence for life at 3.8 billion years, but we don't know when life started here because we have no rock, rock record re- to speak of before uh, four billion years ago. So, so we've got a 500 million year gap in there where we have no evidence. But that, that older record is preserved on Mars because there's essentially no plate tectonics on Mars. Plate continental drift, it's what has destroyed the early record here on Earth. I'll hang in there for I'll hang in there, I'll hang in there. Hang in there. Is there any really, uh, evidence of, of current sort of geothermal activity? I know there's no plate but yeah, well that, that, that's interesting and I'm, I've been puzzled about that. Um, if you think about that image of Olympus Mons that I showed, the giant volcano, there are very few craters on the top and that caldera on the top of Olympus Mons is about the same size as Yellowstone National Park, it's about um, 70 kilometres wide with perhaps two or three craters on it and it looks like um, there are young lava flows, that's what it looks like to me anyway and so there's a bit of a dilemma there that's not consistent with the interpretation of the cratering record. That's all I can say about it. I think it's an unresolved issue. Anyone? Well, if you don't know everything about the Earth, let alone everything about Mars, you know, you've got a way to go. Okay. Well, should we
1: perhaps one final question? Yeah, okay. And then we'll wrap things up then.
2: Um, Solar luminosity has changed over billions of years by, yes. I not 20% or so. Yeah, 25%. effect on the possibility of burning life falls on Mars because the lower temperatures would possibly uh, not allow that water was uh, flowing at that time? Uh would have an effect, but there was higher heat flow from the interior of Mars early on as well because of the, the high concentration of radiogenic elements. So the... Two, you know, yeah compensate. Okay, well
1: perhaps we'll, we'll end there. Um can we all thank Malcolm again for taking time <laughs> to it?
0: We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.